So, the first Sunday of Advent, and I want you to know what this means. This is the North Pole. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Where's the snow? Why are you smiling like that? I just like to smile. Smiling's my favorite. Make work your favorite. That's your favorite, okay? Okay. Work is your new favorite. Fine. It's time for the announcement. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this morning? Oh, hi. Santa's coming. Santa's coming. Is that what Christmas means? Are we ready? Are we like this when it comes to Christmas? I'm not going to get you to admit it, but I know I know people who are like that. My eldest daughter, she can barely contain her excitement when it comes to Christmas. When can we put the decorations up? When can we start playing Christmas music in the house? When can we do this? When we, and there's Christmas carols and there's nativity plays and there's all these exciting things. Is that you? Maybe. Maybe you know someone like that. Or is Christmas, oh, Christmas is coming. I've got to do this, I've got to do this. I've got, is it stress? Is it stress of thinking about what you have to do, who you have to visit, what the whole package of Christmas involves? Or is Christmas, actually Christmas is just a, a sad time, a lonely time, a time that reminds you just how difficult things are. Christmas can be all of these things for all of us. And here, we're at the first Sunday of Advent, preparing, preparation for Christmas. The word Advent means getting ready. The word Advent means arrival. Are we ready? And this is what John the Baptist was talking about. Are you really ready for what's to come? Are you really ready for the Messiah to come at Christmas? Those verses talk about it was the, talking about the start of John the Baptist's ministry of preaching and telling people. The very first thing in Luke's gospel he tells us about is the birth of, of John the Baptist. It's the very first thing. The miraculous announcement from the angel to John's father, who is a priest, he tells him, your wife will, will have a baby. And this baby will have a very significant purpose. Zechariah, his father, is, a, is working in the temple. He can't quite believe this. His wife is old. She is barren. It's, it's a miracle that God has given to them. And this is the very first thing that Luke tells us in his gospel. And then we hear about the birth of Jesus. And then we hear in chapter 3, which is the verses we shared earlier the start of John the Baptist's ministry. Luke pinpoints quite precisely the moment in history. He says the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was governor. Herod, tetrarch. Philip, 
Tetrarch of somewhere else and somewhere else. And he wants to pinpoint not only the historical context, so we can read elsewhere what a difficult and turbulent time this was, but also, and it's also not to make it tricky to read the Bible in church as well, where we get mixed up with all the names. Actually, Luke is very purposefully giving us this information. He's telling us something very significant and very important. He names first the political powers. These are the people in charge. This is the person in charge of the whole empire. This is how this is divided up and who is in charge of each part of this country. He then names the religious leaders. So he says Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. We could only actually have one high priest, but everything had become so corrupted, political and religious stuff all mixed together, that actually the Romans were choosing who were the high priests. And Annas was the high priest, that then they replaced him with Caiaphas. But the people would still see Annas as high priest, even if Caiaphas was a high priest. So you see how bundled up and how messed up it all was, politically and religiously, these are the people in charge. These are the people with power. These are the people... Oh, sorry. These are the people who have to maintain order and maintain control. They have the authority. And then what does Luke say? He says, at this time, the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. To John in the wilderness. In every sense, John was living on the edge of society. He was physically on the edge of society. He, he didn't have political power. He wasn't a high priest or working in the temple like his father. He was living in the wilderness. He was on the edge of society. He had no power, no authority in man's eyes, and yet it was to him in that place that God spoke. And it was to him that the crowds were listening. He didn't have to force a crowd. He didn't have to exert his authority in order to get people to listen to him. In fact, if you read some of the things he said, it's amazing that anyone listened to him. You brood of vipers. That's a nice way to win the crowd over. You brood of vipers. And he, he didn't mince his words. He was saying to the people, are you really ready? Are you really ready for the arrival of the Messiah? Are you sure? Are you sure you're ready? Do you know what this really means? He personifies the fact that real power, real authority, didn't come from titles or positions. He said to people, don't rely on the fact that you have a Jewish heritage. Don't rely on that. Don't rely on the fact that you might have a certain title or position. That's not what God's kingdom is about. That's not what the arrival of the Messiah is about. He's um, a New Testament prophet pointing the way to Jesus and speaking God's truth about justice, about God's kingdom, about God's values. Just like in the Old Testament, the prophets had done before. There's an example... Amos is an example. God, through Amos, says to his people, I hate all your show and pretense. 
the hypocrisy of your religious festivals, away with your noisy hymns of praise. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Religious stuff doesn't matter. Titles don't matter. What God wants to see is justice and righteous living. Jesus, when he started speaking to people, lots of examples of what he said that turned things upside down, but one of my favorites is that when the disciples were discussing and arguing and say, who's the greatest then? Who is the most important? Because, you know, if these religious leaders aren't the most important, if we're following the Messiah, the Son of God, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And Jesus said, well, this child, anyone who's willing to take a lowly position to humble himself, to be as a child, that's who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right from the beginning, right through the Old Testament prophets, right through what John is saying here, right through what Jesus himself says, he's saying that the values of God's kingdom are not the same. What's important and powerful and has authority in God's kingdom is not the same as here on earth. And John's saying to the people, are you ready for this? Are you really ready for the implications of the Messiah. The Jewish people had waited hundreds of years for the promised Messiah. They'd read the prophets and, and knew that the Messiah would come. They'd waited hundreds of years for this to be fulfilled. They were waiting for someone to come who would set them free, who would free them just like all those years ago when through Moses they were freed out of Egypt. Someone would be coming sent from God who would free them. One day soon, one day soon we'll be free. One day God will show those Romans just who they're dealing with. We are God's chosen people. God will restore us. But John is saying, are you really ready? Are you sure you're ready? Are you really ready for what this will mean? And when the people hear him preach, they say, what should we do? What should we do? How should we respond? And you kind of, for me, I can just picture at that time, politics, religion, it was all so mixed up. It was all so intertwined and corrupt that there were so many different rules and regulations and you have to do this and you have to do that. The people saying, what should we do? And I love John's answers. Basically, I think he's saying, it's not complicated. If you've got two cloaks, give one away. If you've got food, share it. If it's your job to collect taxes, be honest and be fair. Don't be mean to people. Don't intimidate people to get more money out of them. It's actually not that complicated. And I think the world of the Roman Empire was not too dissimilar to ours. A world where power is found in titles. A world where power is fought for and held on to so tightly because no, no one wants to lose that control and power that they have gained. But the upside-down world, personified in John and, and 
Jesus, who he spoke about, is not about a power struggle. Seeking justice in our world is not about grabbing power from those who've got it and giving it to those who haven't. Because then what's going to happen? They're going to grab it back again. John was saying, it's not about the Messiah coming and chucking out the Romans and you're in charge and you now have the power. It's not a power struggle. It's about a redefinition of power. It's about redefining what justice looks like, what society looks like. And I think that's what it means for us as well. We can see those similarities. Those who have power, those who have authority want to hold onto it tight. When you hear the word marginalized, you think it's a bad thing. Because those on the edge don't have what those in the middle have. And we have to try and get what those in the middle have. And it becomes a power struggle. And actually, I don't think it's about redistributing power. I think it's about redefining power. It's about redefining what justice means. I want to show you an amazingly technical picture here. Just, I hope you're awake and ready for this technical picture. Okay, this is society, okay? This is society. This is my... If society is this circle, okay? There's the edge of, edge of society. There's the middle of society. There's all the bits in between. What's this? This is nothing. This is society without a margin. You take the margin away, you haven't actually got anything. The margin and the center actually are part of the whole. And yet when we use and hear that word marginalized, we think it's a bad thing. Well, actually, you need the edge and you need the middle to make a whole. And so for me, redefining marginalized, redefining power, redefining society means that actually all parts are part of the whole. There's no better place to be. There's no powerful place to be. Society under this redefinition of God's values isn't a power struggle about who can get to the center. It's about redefining what that means. Where actually it's society, a society where all parts are reconciled. All parts are equal. All parts are interdependent. No one part is more significant or of more value. All parts are together. It's not a power struggle. It's redefining what that power means. We want that society where actually God's values are seen. What would our world look like if it was redefined with God's values? What would our world look like if it was equal reconciled, interdependent, every part. No one part, no one person, no one people struggling to be in charge. That's the question I want to leave with us. What would our world look like under that redefinition of God's values, of God's kingdom? What would my life look like under that redefinition of God's values and God's kingdom?